Medicine, like any other skill or knowledge system, needs to be rooted in both subjectivity and objectivity. By valuing either one over the other, we deprive ourselves of an essential part thereof. Can traditional Chinese medicine and philosophy help us find a more balanced way of making sense of the world than the cold, rational, evidence-based, cause-and-effect thinking of biomedicine and modern science? As Greg Bantic, our special guest on today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, puts it with his wonderful clarity, the act of failing to examine our filters is not benign but dangerous and results in problems like racism, cultural appropriation, and Orientalism. When we encounter perspectives of the world that make us squirm because they challenge our own beliefs and experiences, we have three choices in how we respond. We can deny their value and write them off as barbaric or superstitious. Or we can orientalize or exoticize them as other and then creatively interpret them in such a way that they ultimately confirm our own beliefs. Or we can accept the discomfort and embrace this challenge of getting our own world rocked as a chance to learn something new. And then we grow in that process. The choice is ours. For today's episode, titled Questioning Our Filters, our special guest is Greg Bantic, a leading practitioner and international teacher of Chinese medicine with almost half a century of experience, who also happens to be a deeply committed practitioner of Buddhism with a beautiful, kind heart and a deep well of wisdom. I should warn you, though, we end a bit abruptly and on a sad note, with us sharing a sense of grief at the huge loss of so many centuries of information and experience that can be found in the treasure house of traditional Chinese medicine. As our conversation explores, the misunderstandings and ignorance that affect the transmission of Chinese medicine into the West are due primarily to two key factors, the lack of an open mind and the linguistic barrier that prevents the vast majority of Chinese medicine practitioners in the West from even knowing what is out there. I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Vips, and I'm joined as usual by Leo Locke, resident purveyor of multiple perspectives at the Pebble in the Cosmic Pond podcast, where we share old and new stories about China's healing traditions and about medicine in heaven and on earth and in the sweet spot in between. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to stay in touch. Also, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can. Lastly, are you tired of waiting until the next new moon for the next episode to drop? Do you want to join us for the second half of this conversation? And do you want to support my work through a financial contribution? 
Well, in that case, I invite you to join my Imperial Tutor Mentorship, where you can listen each month to the exclusive follow-up Imperial Tutorial episodes that drop every full moon, in addition to receiving all sorts of other benefits like weekly translations and live tea time talks. Find out more and sign up at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. And now enjoy this episode. Thanks. So one of the uh, challenges and delights of studying a culturally very different medicine for me has been um, a kind of refreshing look at at different ways of thinking about health and disease, but also to be challenged about ways that I've grown up in the culture that I've grown up as cultural views and not necessarily universal views, that other cultures think very differently than the way that I grew up. And it's just interesting for me, sometimes very challenging sometimes exhausting to notice my own prejudices and um, difficulties struggling with inner barriers in myself about, about things. So it's, I, I appreciate the challenge and it's also I appreciate how difficult it is to really understand some of the ramifications of really trying to understand a very different cultural perspective on health and disease. So, Greg, what would be an, uh, a vivid example that you can recall to further illustrate the point you just made? Because I think our listeners would be very curious about that. I think in our medicine, at, at, at least as, as I understand it, in, in some of the earliest texts, for example, as an example, there's um, the description that we are part of nature, part of something much bigger than us as individuals, that at least this is my word, but I get the impression that we're described as very sensitive beings influenced by the wind, the heat, the rain, the people around us, the food we eat, um, the maybe in a modern world, the kind of level of marketing, the political conversations, the social justice conversations that are going on, all of these things have an impact on us. Uh, and um, the tendency is if something is happening in what, what we define ourselves as, as a body or a mind and or mind, that it, we can take it very personally and feel like we're getting something wrong, something's wrong with us. But I think Chinese medicine helps us see that we're influenced by, there are so many things impinging on a very sensitive instrument that aren't always just personal. And I think this is kind of like provocative to think about how then do we care for ourselves? Because care may be more than just what I personally eat or how much sleep I get because there's so many things impinging on us. It's about, it actually uh, challenges us to think about 
how we are in relationships to the people that are closest to us, how we are in relationships to current social problems and uh, many, it has many ramifications. I think the way you just started us off reminds me of when I, w when I was teaching at the National University of Natural Medicine, and I, I had the, the first-year students, they spent a lot of time with me because I was teaching Chinese history and culture, and I was teaching them first-year um, classical Chinese. And then Brenda Hood and I did an immersion retreat, a Chinese culture immersion retreat, And I, we were all really aware that the students within the first few months or year, their world got rocked. And we, a lot of times, those of us who've been in Chinese medicine for a couple of decades, we don't realize it. We don't see it anymore. But for the incoming students, it was really... Um, It was really obvious to, to us as faculty how they were really challenged, especially ones who came from, who had previous, a previous medical background. That, that, so what, the way you put it, I think that's really important to keep that in mind. If we honestly and sincerely engage with the medicine, it is disruptive to our own worldview. It is, it is challenging. It, it it means the medicine affects us and we have a choice with every, as a translator, I see this with every line, every choice I make when I translate a line or when I explain something to my students or in your case, when you explain something to your patients. You can choose, right, how how much you want to stay in in your own way of looking at the world and how much you want to push yourself or your audience whether it's a student or a or a patient and challenge the way they look at the world in a different way does that it make sense yes and and it can be refreshing and it can be deeply challenging you know, as you said, disruptive, but very useful. And, and um, uh, part, part, I guess, of my interest in Buddhism is what are some of the causes of suffering? And ignorance would be one of them, uh, one of the main ones. And so, um, you know, to think of what we're, we're unaware of, what we don't, don't know or fully understand, we might think, well, that's a kind of definition of ignorance. But ignorance isn't something benign. You know, it's not something passive. It's, some, it's like a chosen, uh, I, I'm not, not always, but it, often it is like there's something that I'm uncomfortable with and I will choose to remain ignorant of rather than challenge. And I think Studying a, a culturally different medicine, at least from the one that I culture that I grew up with, you know, brings up all sorts of um, subtle uh, um, prejudices, biases mm -hmm. uh, that that are culture based and not necessarily conducive to 
a, a genuinely open mind, a genuinely open heart, or good health. So what would be an example of that, Greg? I'm very curious because you seem to have such sensitivity and ability to articulate the more subtle challenges that we seldom hear other people speak of. That's why um, I'm just I'd like, if you can give us some really uh, detailed example, I think that will be very powerful for us. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try. We're, recently at our um, large uh, national conference in Australia, a, um, I, I don't want to mention names or this isn't about individual people. It's more about a structural problem. But a, a prominent speaker was going through the uh, definitions of the various channel types in Chinese medicine. And when she got to uh, divergent channels, she said that this divergent, the word means when we diverge from God. And um, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a Chinese medical definition. Uh, it's bier law. Right? The, the, I don't mm -hmm. think this is a an accurate translation of Chinese medical concepts. It's rather more like a borrowing of something to um, affirm a personal belief system. So I, I don't have a problem with people saying, this is how I use various concepts. This is how I think about, um, you know, this formula or this point or this point name even. Um, I do have a little more of a problem when it gets represented as this is what the Chinese meant. You know, even the you know, even saying the Chinese, it's like it, that's problematic in and of itself. But I think that it, it's not about that particular person. It's about using that as a way of seeing how we kind of glom onto another cultural perspective, but we're only coming from our already deeply conditioned point of view and finding ways of uh, reinforcing it or furthering it rather than having that other cultural view open us up, you know, and shake us up and go, oh, I never thought of that. That's amazing. You know, like what? Wow, how did they come up with that? Um, but at the same time as it can be wonderful, it also can be a little bit, um, you know, it makes me squirm sometimes. It's like, oh, man, did I really believe that? I can't believe that what I was thinking about them was actually very small-minded, you know, very prejudiced or something like that. So it's... You know, it can be really delightful and refreshing, and it can also be, oh, I just met something in myself that's really difficult to see. And I wonder in your example whether this person came up with that. You know, she was trying to make sense of the word divergent, and divergent is just one translation. Yeah. 
of yeah. a Chinese concept. Yeah. And when you sit with divergent and you think about, like, I think the disconnect comes from taking the word divergent and seeing what does it mean? Divergent begs the question, from what? And I think that's, and then, of course, yeah, what's God anyway? Um, I think so, that's a really good example. So that's what I, I notice as well as a pretty common phenomenon in the Chinese medical community in the West, right? Or in English-speaking world of Chinese medicine. So I'm... I think I'm past the point of judgment. <laughs> I I'm get actually get these days I'm getting really curious. Is this phenomenon particularly widespread in Chinese medicine, or is it something that is also prevalent or common in other fields that involve cross-cultural? Translation, communication, transmission. You know, that's where my curiosity is. It's like, what are the factors that have fostered this type of culture in, in Chinese medicine? Uh, I would like to hear both of your perspectives on this. Actually, I think... Leo, and I think this is something that, for some reason, that's how Greg and I started talking and even thinking about having this conversation. I think I mentioned you were the first one who brought up the perspective of colonialism to think about our relationship with Chinese medicine. And I just had a meeting this morning with um, a person who I'm a lovely person who I'm assisting with her capstone, doctoral capstone project. And she, and I was pointing out to her that ovulation doesn't exist in Chinese medicine or that menopause, like, you know, this whole thing about menopause, she, she's doing something on menstruation. So menopause is not a concept that exists in Chinese medicine. And the perspective is simply that, uh, you you treat the blood and you you diagnose the person and you look at you know whether there's cold whether there's stagnation whether there's dryness and 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 you treat them um and i asked her to think about she's she's doing these interviews with biomedical and chinese medicine practitioners which is super super cool and we got talking about colonialism as a perspective, which I think is how you've brought it up, that even Chinese themselves see they justify their Chinese medicine practices and diagnoses in reference to biomedicine and science as the dominant paradigm because we are all brainwashed into thinking that that's the, that's the standard way of explaining the world. It has to be scientific and rational, and you have to explain it, and if you can't explain it, then somehow it's less, less valid. So Chinese medicine is always seen in reference to 
global science and rationalism and this linear thinking, cause and effect, and all of these rules that we think of as as medicine or scientific or or we think of as the standard ways of of practicing medicine when really they're a reflection of Western medicine and Chinese medicine is very different and deserves to stand in its own right. And I think it's really hard for us to separate the two and instead of seeing and practicing and diagnosing and teaching and transmitting Chinese medicine from a Western perspective... I think the challenge for me, and that's why I love medical anthropology, is like you just said in the introduction, Greg, how do we not impose our own, how do we question our own way of being and thinking about illness and the world and human relationship with the natural world and interpersonal relationships? How do we make conscious what is unconscious in in each of in every conversation in every translation every time i talk about gender relationships or hierarchies or any kind of value i don't know if that's yeah. going in that greg has direction. a beautiful metaphor using like the central pole i'd like to hear more elaboration on that i think that's very useful um, and I'm happy to share it, but I'd also like to hear your personal experience of this too, because you have something that that I certainly don't have. But one, one way, this isn't my my terminology, by the way, and I, I apologise, I forget where it came from. But um, the centre pole version of the universe, which is um, where we're kind of interested in things that are different from us. They're exotic, you know, they're kind of like exciting and different, but the assumption is that they differ, that they're not the center pole. So, for example, uh, this this has actually bothered me since I was a teenager. I, I realized that there is music, you know, there is the great music, there is classical music, there is high art, some of the best art in the world. There is science. There is history. Um, uh, you know, there is anthropology. And then, and there is medicine, by the way, medicine. And then there is Chinese medicine. Then there is Indian music. Then there is African art. And everything that gets an extra word on it is what diverges or what is different from the center pole. The center pole is the real stuff. You know, this is what science is. And indigenous Australians, they had a kind of pseudoscience or a proto-science, but not really science, even though they had astronomy, they had agronomy, they had many other things like the Chinese, like the Indians. But these are all deviations from the center pole of the kind of implied this is the real medicine. This is the real science. This is the real way to look at, to know, to understand the universe, the world, you know, and our experience. And it's, it's, uh, 
you know, it's problematic on a number of levels because everything else is just, you know, kind of doesn't measure up. And, and that's just so deeply problematic and hurtful and harmful, uh, in my opinion. You know, it's just, it, it's, uh, is that what you're asking, Leo? Yeah, yeah, because you mentioned that a little bit earlier before we are recording. I found that really a yeah. very powerful model or metaphor to to just consider what we're in right now. But really what is so interesting as I was listening to you, Greg, as you were describing this model, I said, wait a second. That's kind of how the chi- the pre-modern Chinese <laughs> thought of themselves and the cultures around them, right? Yeah, because, yeah. because they would say, oh, all these outsiders, these barbarians, they even have a name for the people to the north. Hmm. Like the who? Yeah, you, if yeah. you are the, you're not us, but you're from the north, then you're the who people, right? If you're in the, from the south, then you are called the man. Nanman, <laughs> right? And if you're from the east, like from Japan and the other eastern, eastern to China, then you are Yi, you're Tong Yi, <laughs> right? Even if you're the west to the Tibetan plateau and all the way to the deserts, then you're some kind of Xi uh, Rong, right? So they have a, a label to assign to each of the tr- of the regional people which are not of the central plain mm. of proper China, the middle of China, right? The Zhongguo, yeah. the middle yeah. kingdom, yeah. was centered around, you know, the Yellow River Basin, the central plain people. Anybody else that's not us, we got a name for you. And you're not orthodox? Mm. And, right? Mm. Or, you, you're, right? So, or we call it Zheng Tong. Right, so so that is what fact that came out for me. That wow, that applies to the Chinese too, <laughs> because if we are really honest about what we read when we're reading, you know, especially the pre-modern literature, you, I, I personally get that feeling. That's how the Chinese view themselves. Yeah, I think I wonder if. Like everybody, no, everybody in the world thought like that until maybe two, three generations ago, right? Whether you were European or African or Indian or Chinese or Australian until a few generations ago, that was the universal human experience. Yeah, I... I my my kind of guess is that we now have what I refer to as like the culturally dominant view, and the 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 shall we say Eurocentric or colonialist view is what is now culturally dominant. So even though China might still think of themselves, uh, rightly so, as having an an enormously rich history and as being the center of their universe, there's still there's a, 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 mm-hmm. like a cringe now because this 
wave is rushing over the world of saying, no, you know, this is really, this is music, this is science, this is medicine, this is, and, and uh, you know, the, my, my guess is that, that some cultures are giving into that. Is that your, your impression? Is that, is that how it's changed? Is that... I think definitely so, because especially for China, that would be towards the end of the Qing dynasty, right? As the, as the government, the Qing government was so corrupt and inept and unable to govern even to the most basic level, right? And the rise of the May 4th movement, you know, you gotta, we got to topple the Confucian institutions because that's, see how feudally, backward and conservative we have been. That's why we're bullied by all the Western powers, right? So then the main fourth movement came in. We don't write that way anymore. We don't speak that way anymore. We got to do the new language movement, the new thinking movement, the new technology. We're got to have guns and, you know, planes and whatnot, right? All these things that make the Western power so strong they could come and dictate their terms on us we the reason we're so weak is because when we never tried to learn their stuff we thought we're just this great nation with great culture and look we're their servants now so i think that's for china that was this really the great start of that giving away to the the globally dominant norm from the West because the West had the guns and the the military might to 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 how do you to to make others succumb to them hmm. right so that was the biggest blow I think to the Chinese yeah. confidence it's like oh we're not really the center of the universe now we're just dogs and and then Animals. the Japanese coming in, mm-hmm. you know, the Japanese mm-hmm. that used to be just these little, this little island, these these the barbarians, barbarians, the <laughs> Eastern barbarians, and all of a sudden, the Japanese are part of the colonial powers that are defeating the Chinese. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it was a really horrific, traumatic experience. So it's important to keep this in mind instead of yeah. just. Like I, I see so often how how Westerners kind of say negative things about TCM, about Chinese TCM practitioners, and they don't have enough appreciation for the Chinese background, the historical Chinese background, the reason why Chinese have a relationship with Western medicine and science that is very different from our relationship. Or every country is different, really. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that's I think, a really. I good think the point. Chinese confidence was shattered in the last hundred, you know, more than 130, 140 years. Yeah. So much so that it's not like a colonialism per se. It's like we're going to come in and we're going to impose the standard on you. It's like we want the standard ourselves because it's going to make us stronger. The things that we used to know were so weak and ineffectual that, that makes us, you know, subservient to these powers. So they were very willingly and hungrily gobbling up that knowledge and that paradigm because that's going to what's going to make us strong 
and not be slaves to these powers again. So very different, right? So that's very different from, say, where I grew up, where in Malaysia or the Malayan Peninsula or Southeast Asia, the colonial power to, that came in, mm. they would impose this knowledge on you, whether you like it or not. Mm. So the relationship is different. The, the, the transmission is different. It, it's different because the Chinese were very ashamed and very embarrassed about their failure, right? We, we have this, I don't know if you've seen that, map the satire where china is being there's all these animals the bears the the eagles they were you know sort of sort of on top of the chinese map and carving up the territory and inf influence over china itself remember we have a very famous saying like ba guo lian qun the 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 collective military sort of uh, imposition from the, all eight superpowers from the West upon China, right? That that forces the Qing government to succeed their their control over many places and many things. So that was the a great source of embarrassment and not embarrassment. What's the stronger word for that? Shame. Shame. Right? Yeah. So so I think yeah. it, we have to understand China for the last 100, 150 years from that perspective as well. Can you And what about now? Like it, now? I see what no, <laughs> now they have internalized that, right? It's like what you yes, just described. Yes, yes, yes. But Leo, don't you think there is a resurgence going on where in Chinese medicine, I don't know much about Chinese politics, but when I read people like Liu Lihong, you know, why is his book, the Si Kao Zhong Yi, why is that, that or the Huang Di Neijin, mm -hmm. um, the Yellow Emperors, I forgot how Heiner, it's the book that I translated, the Yellow yeah. Emperor's Inner Needle, mm -hmm. I forgot how he translated that, the, yeah. the book that he published. The revival but, of the classical sense of Chinese medicine. Yeah, it started with him. I, yeah. I would say it started with him and he he actually started this mo worldwide movement. And because in conjunction, I was there kind of in the history of it. I witnessed it, right? Because at that time, that was like the late uh, 2006, 2007. At that time, that, that was the rise of the online forums in China. For the first time in history, they caught up with the West and they were so... I remember there must be at least a hundred online forums just on Chinese medicine where people freely discuss the medicine, the, their lineages, their experience. Never before in history have we seen that. That was the beginning of the revival of regular people having a say in the discussion in that sphere. Because remember, before that, if you're not a professor, you're not a scholar, or have any avenue of publishing, nobody would hear you in China. There's no way a, a normal practitioner or a practitioner from a rural area of, you know, a third level or fourth level city or village could ever have his voice heard. You want to go to a publisher? Who would publish your books? There's a hundred more, more famous doctors in China. 
You're probably the four four thousandth or the ten thousandth guy. But online internet and forums completely changed the dynamics. So mm-hmm. therefore, we from like two about two two twenty years ago, twenty five years now. We had this equalization of the power of broadcasting and communication for the practitioners of Chinese medicine in China for the first time in history. So I think that was part of the a、mm. huge power behind that revival. Can you say something, Leo, to?、Uh... What what does this? There is this kind of national feeling, but what does it mean to these individuals that that they can start to see that maybe the way they were raised, enculturated, and so on, to think a certain way that now they there's a is it like a sense of freedom that they have a personal voice that their experiences, their clinical experience, their life experience. Is worth talking about.、Uh, is is a value. Can... Yeah, you mean like during the revival? Yeah, the, yeah. Like yeah. I just, yeah, I think so. I I think so because fundamentally, I think just like our predecessors and medical ancestors, there's always, especially from the Song Dynasty onwards, right? There's the this cultural encouragement and value in Ruist doctors、mm. being able. To share what they know publicly and as widely as possible, so to serve the world, serve their family, serve their societies, and serve the country. That was a very strong、uh, cultural sentiment, especially since the 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 Song Dynasty, right? So much so that Zhang Ziheng named his book "Ru Men Shi Qin," you know, the Ruist scholars. To serve their loved ones,、mm-hmm. right from from the Jin from the Jin Dynasty. So you know,、mm-hmm. so like eight hundred years ago, it was there already. So I think that never went away. But twenty five years ago and twenty years ago, I think the individual all of a sudden received such power and ability to broadcast what they know to the world. In an unprecedented way,、mm-hmm. which is already sort of native to their cultural upbringing,、mm-hmm. but not to that scale and ease. Because、mm-hmm. yeah, it kind of brings、uh, tears to my eyes. I, I I wasn't aware of that, but the I, I think it it also raises another point that is、uh, I think implicit in our medicine. But it, it's happening. It, it seems to be happening around the world that the reclaiming of subjectivity, or it's more okay to have a personal experience as a po- in opposition to perhaps objectivity, rationality,、um, which which. I'm not. I'm not、um, knocking. I think they're wonderful aspirations, but medicine, living, the food choices we make, everything is also deeply subjective. 
we can endeavor to be objective about them, you know, what is the best diet. But still, you know, it's just like if I chocolate's still attractive, it, it, regardless of the objective whatever about it. So, so it's something about this recapturing maybe pushback against this cold, analytical, data-driven, evidence-based objectivity uh, back to, hang on a minute, I know something. I feel something. Is, it, is that Leo and I had a yeah. conversation about this where he challenged me and called me out for having a colonized relationship with my um, ability to why to to figure out why I love German strawberries. Like and it was it it was it was really good, Leo. I've been thinking about it ever since, and. Um, and I think the way you just put it, it's it it's true. There is, and there to me, reading the classics, I think is my way of entering a world that is different from this cold, intellectual, rational, linear. I mean, linear thinking, dry brainy, whatever you want to call it, this way of being in the world that is all about efficacy and 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 objectivity. And and for me, there's a different way in which the classics and maybe I'm ideally I mean Leo, you can call me on this. Maybe I'm orientalizing. Maybe I love hiding in that world of the classics. I think, you know, this whole conversation is is about orientalizing. How much are we engaging with the information that we receive from Chinese medicine not on its own right? This is my definition of colon like mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, of orientalism is sort of that you don't see information that comes from whether it's China or India or who knows where you 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 just your view of that information is more of a reflection of your rejection of Western. It's mm -hmm. the othering of it, it's more important that it's other than your own than mm. than that you just have this open mind and 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 look at it not as a it as a reflection in in a mirror image against how is it different from my own un questioned unchallenged experience which is the standard but how is it just whether i like it or not whether it triggers me the way you you said originally greg um i think you just put it beautiful both of you just put it really beautifully i think i have never considered that like what you just said sabina as some of our colleagues are actually filtering information and learning them under this invisible framework of like like the other if it is you know and not taking things as is whether is the other or it confirms what i say or doesn't confirm what i say i'm just going to take it in as they are as as is so there's a kind of quite a bit of filtering and selection mm. going on 
in what to receive, what to remember, and what to reject outright, even most of the time unconsciously. And what I really appreciate about what Greg said, which I've never really languaged that way, is the subjectivity, the importance and the value in the subjective experience. I think that really brought out the theme of that revival for me. Is it was this? I don't know if people know about this. In the late two thousands, there was this this electric feeling in the air about Chinese medicine and the revival of it to the more classical roots, away from the institutions. Away from the control of the institutions, because as before that, only to professors, only the Zhu Ren, mm. right? Only uh, the the head physicians had the right or had the the privilege of publishing. Mm. If you don't have any academic position or uh, administrative position, then you basically. Had no voice, despite the fact that you might be like a doctor who treat you know two hundred people a week in a village somewhere, and you are highly efficacious. Everybody loved you. Nobody outside of your village would have heard of you. Not just. But isn't say, it still true, Leo? When I think about a lot less, a lot less. My, now. but when I think about like even in my. Little island right here. Our local acupuncturist is wonderful. He's a wonderful healer, and he's so busy treating people. He's not on Facebook. He's not interested oh, in. But if they choose in, to, they can. They they have if they as uh, somebody choose to broadcast and share their knowledge, they can. But how do you but, actually break through the noise? Like, there's so much noise now. At least there is an avenue. There's nobody yeah. stopping you. And you can always go on TikTok or whatnot. You, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we're yeah. talking about a, a privileged, under, a privileged problem. Before that, there was not even this privilege of broadcasting to the world. Do you see the contrast? Yeah. Not... Only yeah. if you have a choice now. Only if you choose to, you may not succeed. But just like you and I, we chose to engage with the world, and some people listen. And there's no technological barrier for us to, or political thing to stop us from saying what we want to say. But that's not the way it was three, thirty, twenty-five, thirty years ago. You cannot just go onto TikTok or Weibo and say, "Oh, here's what I treated. I treated this, 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 this," and then a thousand people or ten thousand people saw it. <laughs> that was an impossibility. Nobody even thought that was possible. Do you see the difference? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a huge difference, yeah. Yeah. right? So now we see what we see now is, uh, on these social media in China, doctors. Will be broadcasting right out of their, uh, their phones, from their office, and say, "Hey, this book just came out, and let's look at these wonderful discoveries." And I just saw this patient two minutes ago, and I used this needle, which was said in the book. So, every individual physician now in China has that power. 
mm. if they choose to. And if you go online, you see them. Whether we get to see them or not, sometimes has to do with well, whether you participate in the search engines or what. That's a technical issue, mm. not a structural issue. Structurally, there is nothing to prevent anyone in broadcasting about their clinical experience, acumen, understanding. That's no longer. There's no longer obstacle to that. Now, whether we can access them or not. Because we're not in touch with the ecosystem, that's a different issue, right? For example, if I don't search for certain topics along certain lines, I'll never saw these broadcasts by this particular doctor or group of people from you know Anhui or from. No, I will never see them. But if I do put in some search words for them, they will show up. That was an impossibility, a complete impossibility, twenty-five, thirty years ago. There's no way I can, right? Yeah. Not with that ease. Not with that ease. And then I the question is, how Brett. does yeah, the question is how does that how is that different for somebody who doesn't know Chinese? Ah, that's a yeah, that's a linguistic issue. <laughs> yep, that's a really good issue. That's, I think that's part of my grief or my sadness, my deep sadness, as as you probably experience as well to a certain extent, Sabina. Is we live in both worlds, right? On mm. the left, we see the Chinese world, and on the right, we see the Western, say, English-speaking world. But there's so much information that has been going around. And really well validated and verified and useful and pragmatic in the Chinese world that nobody over here has ever heard of. That we're like yeah. we live in two parallel universes. Like so, as somebody who could cross the worlds and live between the worlds, I think that my first emotion is great sadness. Yeah. To be honest, that's grief, deep grief. Of you see this world like people can already solve this problem so easily over here, but over here people when you start speaking to them they thought you are some kind of charlatan and snake oil salesman coming from another universe, trying to sell them something. You know, I think that's part of my sadness come from that. And I think. I've picked up on the same sadness. I mean, Greg, I don't know you that well, but I, I've also picked up on that concern mm. I, in I, I, your statements. Yeah, I, I share the grief. Um, I'm not fluent in Chinese, but the because I think uh, you, you mentioned the word filters before, Leon. I think um, unexamined filters. They're not benign. They're actually really dangerous. And, 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 and then we can just go, what do the Chinese have to teach us? You know, there, or what do, uh, it actually makes me teary. You know, what do our indigenous Australians have to teach us? They're, they're, it's old. 
it's primitive. All of these other words, it's unsophisticated. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not modern. It's not cutting edge or all of these sorts of oh. – th- these are actually deeply prejudicial. Superstitious. Su- right? Superstitious that, yeah. and, and often just, frankly, racist filters that are unconscious. You know, uh, uh, you, you know the, the words colonialism we haven't talked about, but it's very close to to it of cultural appropriation. There are many. Th- these are not small things. But if I could just jump back to maybe trying to a, a way to try to get at this, if we acknowledge our subjectivity, that even if you're looking at an MRI or a blood work workup. Um, we have a we have a joke in Chinese medicine. You know, if you if you have uh, uh, two doctors examine a patient, you get at least three opinions. Well, but it's the same thing with doctors looking at blood work or a scan. You know, the the scan itself, the blood work, may be a level of objectivity, but there is a subjectivity interpreting it. And one, one doctor will say, oh, that's not really important. Another doctor will say, no, that very thing could be very significant. I, I think what we can learn from traditional Chinese medicine, but, but more than traditional Chinese, shall we say, philosophy, that they had a well-articulated, practiced sense of their subjectivity as human beings. What is it to be a human being? You know, what is it to be uh, deeply immersed in an external world, a community and all, not not only as an individual, but as part of something much bigger. And and that there are, I'm not trying to, um, you know, make them out to be perfect, but they have things they have knowledge about how to be a subjective being aspiring to a level of objectivity and rationality and so on that we could we could really learn from and so it it's hurtful to me when it's just like oh you know what could we learn from them you know that's like we dominate now we won mm. I think it goes back to the conversation that Leo and had Leo and I had a while back about the Yellow Emperor grieving, really being distressed about not being able to help his people. Mm. I think that's the sentiment here that that we are we the three of us are aware that there's knowledge getting lost. Because we're not we're not approaching the other that source of information with an open mind. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode. And I know we ended on a kind of sad note. So we actually continued the conversation. And the second half is um, recorded in as part of the Imperial Tutorial, which you can sign up for my Imperial Tutor Mentorship if you want to 
end on a more upbeat note. And we didn't do that on purpose. It's just the way it worked out, I promise. But you can sign up for a $9 nine-day trial over at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. Um, I look forward to hearing your feedback, getting your responses. Sign up for my newsletter. Stay in touch. Thank you for listening.